0: G'day, welcome back, Darren Mitchell here, and you're about to listen to another brand new episode of the Exceptional Sales Leader Podcast. I've got to say, the opportunity to speak with some phenomenal people around the world is, uh, is a privilege, and today is no exception. I'm speaking with Jared Spiewak, who is the founder and lead strategist at Comet Fuel, a lead gen agency based out of New Hampshire in the US. Jared is young, uh, but he's got a lot of wisdom, he's got a lot of experience having uh, started his entrepreneurial journey. Uh, very early on in his life, and he continues to add value across the world. Uh, today's conversation is all about scaling intentionally your business. Lots of great things to talk about, and uh, if you'd like to connect with Jared, learn a little bit more about what Comet Fuel does, then of course uh, please refer to the show notes. So, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. Welcome back to the Exceptional Styles Leader podcast and a very special welcome to Mr. Jared Spiewak, all the way from New Hampshire in the, I think it's New Hampshire, New Hampshire in the, uh, in the US. Welcome, Jared. How are you, mate?
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pretty well.
0: Well, considering the conversation we just had and without divulging too <laughs> much, there's a thing called, uh, COVID that's going around and looks like you're on the back end of, uh, of that experience yourself. So how are you, how are you feeling and what was the experience like for you, given that it was the first time you've actually caught it? yeah
1: it's um it's a lot of fun. I recommend everybody go out and start uh licking lampposts until you get it and uh you're in for a good time it's um it's definitely the sickest I've ever been it it the symptoms every day have been kind of different, which is a little bit annoying so because I wake up and just don't know what to expect but uh all in all, uh, I'm glad I got the the three vaccines that I did because I'd probably uh be completely
0: out for the count if I didn't oh man. And I must say, when I um, because for the for the listeners, not divulging too much information, but the Zoom link wasn't working this morning, so I had to uh, send a new one to you. Then I got the return email out of office kind of email to say sorry, I'm um I'm, I'm recovering from COVID, <laughs> so I might be a bit uh, slow in responding, but uh, there you were, mate, on time, jumping on, and here you are now. So. It's great to uh, great to be able to have a conversation with you. So, Jared, you are the founder and lead strategist at Comet Fuel and love to know a little bit about that. But before we jump into Comet Fuel and and what you do and what value you add to the marketplace, love for you to give the listeners a little bit of a background on the Jared Spearwack story in terms of um, well, not so much when you were born and and all your all your primary school, <laughs> university stuff, but uh, just a little bit of a background in terms of what was your main focus growing up and and what has led you to being in this particular marketplace? Because I'd love to dive into what you do and the value that you add.
1: Yeah, of course. So, I mean, uh, you know, as much as you mentioned not starting primary school, it, it's funny because the first, the first thing that I ever really did was in – it's either fourth or fifth grade. I want to say fifth grade, but you know, nobody quote me on that. Um, <laughs> is you know, I've always been interested in in business to some sort of extent, and so at the time, what I was doing is I was uh, writing. Uh, Basically basically plagiarizing uh, horror movies, turning it the setting into my school, killing off my friends, and then selling copies of that story for a dollar because everyone wanted to see how they died. And so uh, from a very early age, I was interested in doing something on my own. And that kind of um, transgressed until when I was... Uh, freshman in high school. I was 14 at the time. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to start college early because I was doing some things that allowed me to do that. How am I going to pay for it? Very expensive here in the States. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but ridiculously expensive here. And so I had to figure out how to make money. So I started going online again, started writing without plagiarizing this time, uh, making a couple bucks, learning about kind of the online world, online marketing, Just kind of how I, uh, fell into things. So at, uh, Uh, 15, I started college, 16, graduated high school. Uh, 17, I started working in corporate America in marketing. And I was like, okay, great. I made it Um, pretty early on, starting at the bottom of the corporate ladder. I'm gonna climb my way up, you know, very early on in my career, great. And very quickly learned corporate America really isn't for me. So I started freelancing. I signed up for a website called upwork.com, started working for about $5 an hour so I could get some uh, portfolio items under my belt so I could basically bolster my resume. Try to get a job somewhere else in the corporate world didn't really work out. uh, But as I was freelancing, I ended up getting a full time offer from a digital marketing agency. Mm -hmm. So I ended up working for uh, just over or just under two years rather for a law firm marketing agency uh, focusing on SEO, became the lead SEO strategist eventually went from full-time down to part-time down to no time and went, okay, what do I do from now, uh, from here? So I started my own uh, SEO agency in 2018 called Blue Dog Media. Fast forward two years, we started to offer Google Ads as a service, kind of uh, initially as as an initial offer to upsell into SEO. Very quickly learned that uh, Google Ads was helping us and our clients make a lot more money faster than SEO was. So we started to transition fully to uh to ppc in uh 2020 2021 is when we made uh that change and we rebranded to comet fuel at the time and that's has been our focus ever since
0: wow um so was a couple of things you said there and and one of the things that piqued my interest was that starting college at 15 finishing high school at 16 does that mean you were doing two things at once and then jumped into corporate america at 17
1: yeah so uh Basically, uh, everyone, uh, most people assume like, oh, because you got started early, you must be pretty smart. Uh, it's actually the opposite. So I was a, I was a CD student, but uh, they, uh, my friend at the time, her sister uh, graduated early through basically uh, her sister was like the typical like straight A student, like maxed out all the courses that she could take and wanted to graduate early. So she did an online charter school, which allowed her to take more than the maximum of eight classes per semester. And so I went to the guidance counselor at the school and I was like, hey, uh, I want to also sign up for that. And they were like, sure. Yeah, no problem. The only people that would typically do this would be people who uh, were the overachievers or people who didn't want to go to summer school because they were failing, but there was no restriction on it. So I was yeah. basically in two high schools at the same time doing the minimum to pass both just at a, a, at a faster pace. And uh, a running start program allowed me to do uh, both dual credit for high school and college at the same time until I finished with high school. Then I got to do full-time college. And then from there, because I was in college, I was able to start uh, getting uh, interviewed for corporate jobs because they didn't, you know, you don't put your age on your resume, at least not here. They just go, oh, you're in college? Like, yes, we'll sit down. And then you find out the age at the interview. And then they're like, hmm, let me actually see if we can legally hire you. <laughs>
0: Well obviously they did because you went into corporate America at 17. Yeah. So before we jump into talking about what you do now with Comet Fuel, uh love love your take on corporate America, because I think corporate in Australia and corporate America are probably similar. Uh it, obviously a lot bigger companies in in the States than perhaps in Australia. But I'd be interested in your experience there and what was it that um what was your experience in terms of good things, but also what what I think you said it wasn't for you and that's led you to do some other things because um, there'll be a lot of people listening to this who are currently in corporate and they don't know anything different. And there'll be others that are listening to this and thinking, why would anybody want to go into corporate? So there's always going to be two sides to the story. Um, and I think everybody can write their own story, but what was, what was your experience at a very young age that led you to um, make that decision to say, you know what, it's not for me, but what were some good things as well that you learned from that? Uh so I think some of
1: some of the good things you know it's it's been a while now and you know normally I just get asked about the bad things um <laughs> I, so I I guess what I would say is like the the structure and organization was something that I learned very early on, I think I learned very quickly how to be a professional, if you will, how to talk and converse through email professionally, even though all my communications at the time were internal. It was, oh, seeing the other language that people use that everywhere else that I went, immediately people were like, oh, like you sound like you know what you're doing, just because I sound a little bit more formal through my email communication. So I think I got to learn structure and organization uh, very early on, mm-hmm. but the downside and what I didn't like was that there's a lot of politics at play and there's a lot of like, oh, like you have to pay your dues, then you get promoted based off of not uh, what you know, but based off of who you know. And I was kind of at a point where I was like, you know, uh, I was going into things fairly early on. I was doing things at a younger age than most uh, were doing at the time. And I was like, wow, like I am ambitious. Like I'm interested in what I'm doing. I want to go from where I am now to, you know, higher up position, you know, where, where can I go in the future? Mm -hmm. And when I would talk to uh, at the time, uh, I was usually there overnight, because I was still in college at the time while working here. So I would go in at like 3pm, everyone was gone by five, and then I'd be in the office to like 8pm. And so like, at at night, it'd be me and the CFO, I'd occasionally have conversations with him, or I'd I'd have conversations with the head of HR. And they'd basically tell me, yeah, you know, like, you're here for like two, three years, and then you like move on to something But it's like, okay, well, what have I am already like exceeding at what I'm doing? Or what if I feel like I can do something more, do it faster? It's like, no, like it doesn't matter if you're above average or below average, this is like, this is the path. Like this is, this is what's set for you. And like, there is a chain that you just have to climb. And what I looked, when I looked at how other people were climbing that chain and just like, oh, like that person like hates this other person, but they're friendly with them because you know eventually they're they're trying to get promoted, and if they don't like this person, that this other person is never going to approve their promotion. It's, I don't like that. Like I have no problem like telling someone like, hey, like. Uh, like if someone's a problem, like I just like get rid of them. Like, hey, I'm yeah. I don't want to work with you. Like, I just don't like, enjoy it, and that's not something you necessarily have the ability to do. In that type of world, is not considered professional. Uh, where I'm more interested in like my own mental and physical health, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to, uh, you know, suffer because like oh, I have to basically you know kiss someone's butt because you know they are the person I need to appease in order to get that promotion four years down the line um, where I just want to sit in, learn everything that I can and be like, yes, if I can go from a, a junior to a senior in three years instead of 10 years because I was really interested in this and I spent 20 hours a day doing research and messing around yep. with things and just learning, I would love to do that, uh, but yep. I couldn't. So yep. it just wasn't for me.
0: It's interesting because I, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and we we're talking about the concept of entrepreneurship. So Mm -hmm. being entrepreneurial within a big organization. um, And I think there might be some companies out there that allow that, but as you've just described is no different to a lot of the big organizations that I've experienced here in Australia, where there's a very um, specific structure. There is almost like a, a pathway that's been set out. That's predetermined that you have to pay your dues and you have to be patient, all that sort of stuff. And whilst it might be for some, it's not for a lot of others. And, my own experience is that a lot of people don't have the, I guess, the knowledge that they can go and do something else and really express themselves in another in- industry. Because a lot of them, a lot of them, I think, crave a level of certainty that a big organisation will give them. So they'll put up with that politics and they'll put up with, mm. you know, having to work with somebody who perhaps they don't like and they don't like them because they know they'll be able to get some certainty at the end of the road and maybe get that promotion, that corner office, that, that real plant, not the rubber plant, and maybe even a, a nice car spot.
1: Yeah, exactly. So,
0: was was there anything specific? Because you left you left corporate America in a, at a very early early age. Was there anything specific that was the the catalyst for you to to jump ship and um and start something for yourself? Did it go back to those entrepreneurial days when you were like fourteen, writing those writing those stories?
1: Yeah. So, so what kind of happened was at a certain point I realized that there probably wasn't a path for me. Uh, there wasn't a future for me at the company that I was at. And so I started interviewing at other places. It was a real struggle to uh, get interviews because when I went to school, I went for my associates, not my bachelor's. And uh, a lot of companies are like, we don't care about your experience, your knowledge. Like if you don't have your bachelor's, we don't even want to talk to you, which is another thing that I didn't like about the corporate world. And so uh, that's when I started freelancing to try and have a portfolio, which did get me more interviews. But then from there, I was like, man, like still nothing's really happening. I'm still not making any progress here. So I started freelancing more, started teaching myself a bunch of different things, started learning uh, different facets of marketing, started teaching myself uh, web development, game development, uh, app development, just wanted to mess around with things and see what I was interested in, what I was good at. And what kind of happened was I was simply, you know, to be honest, I would just chalk it up to luck, you know, not necessarily divine intervention, but just probability of just like putting myself out there. And eventually uh, through, through my freelancing, I got contacted by another company that was like, hey, uh, we'll take you on full time, work from home, and we'll pay you double what you're making now. So it's like, how could I say no to that? Wow. So that was you know, my kind of <clears throat> leap away from there, where if I hadn't had that opportunity, I don't necessarily know what would have happened. Maybe I would have stayed in corporate for a little bit longer. Maybe I would have uh, immediately just jumped into freelancing full-time. I don't really know. But uh, just kind of me looking for additional opportunities kind of uh, I fell into a different path that I wasn't necessarily looking for.
0: Yeah. And often, um, and you probably heard this being said, and you might even resonate with this, that you can't really join the dots until you look backwards. And I think Steve Jobs was the first person that yeah. said that. And at the time, you might be thinking, why can't I get these? Why? I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't have a bachelor's degree, but why should that be a hindrance? Um, And why are people judging me based on that? But it's only when you start to look back that the things that happened for a very specific reason, and if they didn't, you wouldn't be where you are today. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is, yeah. which is a great lesson. And a lot of people don't want to learn that lesson, but it's through the... I guess through patience and perspective that you realize, you know what, there are some stuff that I have to go through that is meant to be that enables me to learn the lessons I need to learn in order to get ready for the responsibility that's gonna come down the track. So it's um it's a it's a great lesson. Great lesson. Uh from from that then, what was the, you know, as you as you're working through that organization and then thinking, you know, I can do stuff on my own. What was the what was the motivation for eventually what became Comet fuel. Was there something specific in the marketplace you saw a, a gap? Because we talk to sales leaders all the time about the fact that you need to be looking at what is the problem in the marketplace that needs to be solved mm-hmm. and how can you create a solution for that problem? And if you can do that, then you've got something that is marketable. What was it for you that you saw a gap that enabled you to create what now is comet fuel?
1: You know, what's interesting is that uh for For the problem that Comet Fuel is trying to solve, I don't think we really identified that until our fifth year of business, uh, which is quite interesting. But what got me to kind of go out on my own wasn't really trying to solve a problem as much as it was... I was the lead SEO strategist for a law firm marketing agency. So I worked with law firms day in, day out. It's a highly regulated industry. Um, There's a lot of things you can say, can't say. And because uh, I ultimately work for a company, I have to follow their practices, their guidelines, their SOPs, et cetera. And because I wanted to learn as much about, uh, at the time, SEO as I could, there were all these other tactics and ideas and strategies that I wanted to try that I simply, it wasn't my department to try or wasn't my place to try. So I simply just started taking on uh, some freelance work just to try new things out, try strategies that just weren't applicable to law firms, which is, uh, I couldn't do on, on the sites that I was working on or just other people would normally handle. And that just kind of uh, started to snowball with, oh, I'm getting some side work and I'm trying new things. That's leading to more work and more work and more work where it wasn't necessarily like, oh, like what what's this problem that I can solve in the marketplace as much as like I just want to have fun and explore and try new things. And eventually... I was making like three times as much money on on the personal stuff that I was doing compared to uh, what I was doing at the agency. Yeah. And I kind of sat down with uh, my boss at the time, and she was just like, why are you here? <laughs> like, you're like, <laughs> why are you still here? Um, and I was like, eh, that's a good point. So, uh, so pretty, pretty soon after that conversation, I, uh, I basically put in my two weeks, and I was already uh, at the time, and, uh, you know, yeah, I can disclose the number. It's it's already out there, but I was doing about twenty thousand a month, um, just freelancing at the time, and yeah. I was just like, I was like, okay, I guess I can go on my own, and, and what do I do from here? Okay, I guess I'll just start an agency. That's the world I know, so that's what I'll do. Uh, yeah. And what was interesting is as I started an agency, that's when I started to I really think about like, okay, now I have a business, and now what do I do? And it was very slow at first uh, for Blue Dog Media, the the SEO company. What I what the big thing that I did was I realized that the way that most sales processes work is you approach a company, you say, "Hey, I want SEO," and one of two things happen. Either happens, they either say, "Great, this is the price," or you say, "This is my budget. What can you do for it?" Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of those scenarios suck because what hasn't happened is any sort of actual strategy work because you're not going to do. Tons and tons of work for free it doesn't make sense. It's very expensive, it takes a long time, et cetera. So, what I did was go, okay, well, here's all the strategy work that people do in the first like four to six weeks, depending on who you're working with. I'm going to take that and make it a separate standalone engagement. And I'm not going to give you a proposal. We're going to sit down. I'm going to have a conversation with you. You're going to tell me a little bit about what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to say, okay, great. I'm going to, this is the price for me to basically put together a proposal for you. I'm going to figure out exactly what needs to be done. I'm going to figure out an actual project plan. And then I'm going to present to you a proposal of the timeline, exactly what needs to be done. And so what was different about what we were doing and the problem that we were kind of solving inadvertently, which was really started off as a sales tactic, which later I understood like, oh, this is a bigger problem for people. Is that uh, people were just kind of hoping, like, oh, I hope whoever I'm working with is going to help me solve the problem. Yeah. Where we were actually sitting down, saying we've identified exactly why you're not ranking well enough, why you're not getting as much traction as you want, because you paid us to actually do all the research, to actually look at your competitors, to actually do all the audits, to actually, you know, pull all this data that did take, you know, eighty hours of work over, you know, a two week period of time, or you know what have you, uh, which eventually got way more automated down because it was way too cumbersome at first. Uh, so that was. That was kind of my first uh, kind of intro to doing something that was unique and understanding that if you do something that's a little bit different, a little bit unique, it's easier to stand out against the noise. Yeah. As that transition to Comet Fuel, uh, what was different for here is five years into the business, counting uh, Blue Dog Media as well, so about one and a half, two years into Comet Fuel, we went, okay, the the business has grown uh, larger than... Uh, than I thought it would. To be honest, I didn't think I'd do very well. To be fair, um, and I was like, okay, well, what problem do we actually solve for our clients? And I'm like, okay, well, everyone who comes to us wants to make money. That's that's the simplest thing, right? People go, if I want to invest in marketing, it's because I want money in, and then more money coming out. And so I asked our clients, okay, how much money are we making you? They went, I don't know. Okay, interesting. So I started asking our our prospects, how much money is your marketing making you? They're like, I don't know. So like, okay, so you don't know how much money your marketing is making you, and you're going to judge your relationship with your in-house or out-of-house marketing based off how much money they're making you, but you have no way to measure it. They're like, nope. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, Fascinating. you're talking to people, and we basically realized, because we just work with lead gen, so it's not like e-commerce, where you can just you know go in the back end of Shopify and see what the number is. Uh, yeah. What we notice is that uh, tracking is really difficult. And even if you're doing tracking well, it's, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, our, our numbers are across like four different software, and it takes a, a while to like pull the data if we can pull it together. And so no one does it that often because it's just a massive pain. Or like we just never thought about tracking. Or sometimes we'll work with businesses who are, you know, doing multiple millions a year, don't even have a CRM. And so we're like, wow, um, all these people are looking to hire us or other businesses like us with the goal of making more money. And everybody's, you know, talking, you know, everybody's marking this as like, hey, we'll make you money, we'll make you an ROI. But the agencies often have no idea how much money they're actually making their clients, and the clients often have no idea how much money their agencies are are, are helping them make either, uh, because just the dots aren't connected. So what we started to do is understanding that there is uh, a, a massive gap for lead gen companies to connect their sales and marketing data to actually be able to attribute... Uh, sales to indiv- individual marketing channels and track that from the individual click all the way to cash being in the bank, regardless of how long that sales cycle is. Mm-hmm. And the the software for the all all this already exists. It's just that it's either very expensive or it's very complicated that the average service-based business just isn't really used to and doesn't under- necessarily understand uh, the kind of the complexity of uh, tracking and attribution. And so where we were able to step in and just say, hey, let's, uh, let's help you kind of connect some dots we were able to solve uh, massive problems like what happens when you have uh, one campaign that generates 10 leads, sorry, 100 leads and 10 sales, and another campaign that generates 100 leads and two sales, sorry, 200 leads, but two sales. But if you're only tracking leads, you're trying to spend more money on the latter, but the former is making you a lot more money. Yeah. And so we're just seeing, wow, you might even be optimizing towards making less money if you're only looking at lead gen. So yeah. that's what we've kind of been working on for the past uh,
0: about year now. Wow! And what's been the? Because that sounds like a differentiator in the marketplace. Given that not a lot of organizations do that. Because if you've got uh, agencies not knowing how the how they're generating income or or profit, and and you've got the organizations that are doing this bringing these agencies in and they can't measure it. It's like, well, how do they, is it just like on a wing and a prayer, we trust you and we hope against hope that we're going to make some money moving forward. It's, it's, it doesn't sound, well, it doesn't sound right or common sense, which is, which is probably not common.
1: Yeah. So I think it, I think that there's an assumption that a lot will make is that there's a, a a one-to-one ratio of a, a, of a. Prospect uh, or a contact and a, a sale. That if if we get a uh, hundred uh, leads and we on average close you know ten percent of leads, that'll lead to about ten sales. And that's the only math that people are doing. And you know people are fine with that rough uh, forecast or estimate. Yeah. Uh, the challenge though is that everyone's fine with that math when the business is going up and to the right. But mm-hmm. as soon as it's not, then everyone panics. But the historical data doesn't exist to actually look at what went wrong. And yeah. that's when everyone has a problem, is yeah. when someone comes to us, which you know happens in the past all the time, and they're like, Hey, um, our our leads are down this month or our sales are down this month, you know, what's going wrong? And we're like, Things are up 20%. I don't know. And they're like, Well, why are things down? I'm like there, there's nothing for us to track between step A and step 47. So I I don't know why, you know, we've gotten 40% more leads in the past, you know, two months, but you're seeing fewer sales and no major changes have happened in the advertising strategy. What have happened on your close rates? What have happened on this? What about this? Mm. What about that? I don't know. And so uh, it's this really big problem that uh, people only recognize when things go wrong, right? Like yeah. no one cares about having insurance until you need insurance, right? Like who cares about, you know, having a uh, liability insurance uh, until you're actually getting sued. And now you need
0: that insurance policy. That's it. That's it. That's it. So when you think about that and, and it sounds like you, you specifically went away from just grabbing, grabbing cash to then generate leads and you wanted to sit down specifically, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, understand I guess, the nuances of the business and what that business was all about to build a strategy to get a really strong and solid platform from which to now have a, have a campaign that would deliver some more, I guess, tangible, replicable results? Is that is that the strategy?
1: Yeah, basically. I mean, at, at the end of the day, there. if you're only tracking leads, which is what, uh, from my experience, it's been about in Roughly about a thousand ad accounts for lead gem businesses, and 99% don't have any sort of tracking beyond like phone calls and form fills. And if that's all you're tracking, like here's here's the challenge. Like, if a current customer forgets your, you know, if you're, you know, Bob's Plumbing and someone's in someone searches again for Bob's Plumbing because they forgot your phone number, and then they find your phone number on an ad and they call you that's going to be considered a lead to your marketing people and they're going to go great you know we got a new lead let's put that in a report hey you know yeah. extra conversion extra lead uh, yeah. you know, they're not doing it uh, maliciously there's just n- no connection there and so you're optimizing also potentially for people who forgot your phone number or for random bots on the internet that are you know clicking and filling out your form or you're assuming that because you got uh, 10 leads on one keyword and 10 leads on another keyword, that the quality of those keywords are, are equal, and that those uh, that they didn't have different close rates, or that they didn't have uh, different um, average order values, or or something like that. So our kind of overall thesis is that if we can help close the gap between lead and sales data. We can be uh, much more tactical in our decision making by also considering uh, not just what drives the most leads, but uh, what has the highest average order value, what has the highest close rate, what has, uh, you know, what has the best, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, turnaround time or uh, not turnaround time, but the the lowest uh, lead time for actually turning into sales. And so, if we have a specific goal to generate a certain ROI or to generate a certain amount of uh, gross volume of cash, it's much easier to do that if we can actually track that ROI or track the amount of cash coming in rather than just kind of having a, a hope and a prayer and say, yes, we got 50 leads this month. Our goal is to help you get to from three and a half to 5 million. Hopefully we're on the right track to do that. I don't know if we are, but you have leads coming in. Uh, we're. I'd rather come in and say, um, yes, we got... Uh, 50 leads, and that turned into 15 sales, and uh, uh, 10 of those sales all came from the same campaign. So we're actually killing off that second campaign, even though it generates more leads at a lower cost. It just gener- yeah. doesn't generate enough sales, and so we're gonna, you know, double the results simply because we have more than just lead data. We have the actual data that matters.
0: Yeah, love it, love it. And it's it's it sounds like as you're describing it, it sounds quite scientific, but. It's amazing how many organizations don't forensically investigate what their go-to-market strategy is, what campaigns are working, what's not working. Um, and they're just almost like a wing and a prayer. They just hope they'll put some stuff out there. It's like the mother gets thrown on the wall and the hope that some mm-hmm. of it's going to stick because, hey, we got the best product and we got the best service. So why wouldn't customers be falling over themselves to want to come and do business with us? And in reality, it doesn't always work like that. Um, Jared, I was wanted, wanted to ask you in terms then of your, I guess, your main focus in terms of the niche of business. Now, you mentioned before you started off in, in law firms, then went and did some work at Upwork and did some stuff on the side and to the point where you had to stop working at the law firm. And that's obviously as you were talking about before you went from full-time to part-time to no-time. That's probably the reason why. Um, in terms of your niche, um, can you describe the, I guess, the average size of customer? Because there'll be people listening to this, that are working for SMEs there'll be people listening to this that are working for big corporates and I guess where I'm going with this is the I guess the process or the strategy should be relatively the same in terms of understanding your market understanding what the, the problem is you're wanting to solve and then how you go to market needs to be really important but in terms of the work that you guys do um, what's your what's your key market segment that you tend to focus on
1: yeah. So we work with a uh, service-based and SaaS founders usually. So, uh, and we've been trying to internally find the best way to describe this, but usually if someone describes himself as a founder, uh, especially their service-based business, that's usually going to be someone with a different mentality than someone that just considers themselves the owner of a business. And I just found yes. that they call them. If I go to their LinkedIn, they say founder. Uh, I know that that person's going to be way more bought into my process when I get on a call than if than I say owner, CEO, etc. Yeah, marketably. How we market that? We just say like founder and kind of hope that people get it. But service-based and SaaS founders who are looking to hit five to ten million in in yearly revenue, that is kind of the the circle that we've hit. the The reality is is that no matter how you define your niche, uh, plenty of people outside that niche will still be like, hey, like I don't care if that's what you say your niche, will you still work with me? So we've had people that are like already doing like fifty million plus, be like, hey, do you want to work with us? But we found that. By really uh, focusing on uh, service and SaaS businesses, lead gen, with it trying to hit that five to ten million range, what we find is that that really attracts that uh, one to two million dollar business that is at the point where they're like, we have, uh, we've gone from like point A to point B on our own, and really. Can't get to that next step without bringing in an outside source because we don't have the budget to hire an entire in-house marketing team. They might have an in-house marketing person, but you mm-hmm. know you're going to have uh, the, the companies I've worked with that actually do this in-house have like 10, 15 people on the marketing team and still need outside agencies to help them. Uh, so wow. you know, and so we're like, okay, usually they've done their own marketing. Maybe they have an in-house marketing person, and they're confused about how they can grow their business from that you know one to two million to about five to ten million. And usually at this time is where they're starting to realize the importance of attribution. Not everybody, we still definitely get some buy-in problems when we're talking about our process to people, which sounds silly that when we talk to people about, hey, knowing how much money you're making from marketing, does not everybody's bought into that. Yeah. Um, but at that point, we're usually able to sit down with someone and go, hey, um, they've had some problems. They've had times in the past recently where they've gone, the, the marketing numbers have gone up, the, the, the revenue numbers haven't. How does that happen? How do how do all these signals that should be saying I'm making more money mm. say that they're going in the right direction, but then the actual numbers that I'm seeing in the bank account and the p l aren't going in the same direction? So that's where it's really easy to have the conversation. And we're still talking with a founder, CEO, et cetera, where we have the ability to get buy-in at the highest level. Because if we're talking to someone you know, four steps down that ladder, it's much harder to get buy-in into a process that could require them to look at how they look at their overall marketing and sales process differently and then get buy-in from all the other executives.
0: Because if you go to somebody that's a, like a marketing assistant or a a general manager of marketing, not the ultimate decision maker, it may actually actually, uh, create a bit of a... uh, an opportunity for other parts of the business to see that perhaps their marketing strategy is not working as efficiently as perhaps this marketing general manager says it is. So it could be exposing them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely a possibility. And I think that, you know, on that point, uh, something that is that I've always been curious about and I've like, if I had the free time, I'd I'd figure out a way to like uh, test this at a larger scale, but there is probably a, high percentage of businesses who are who are losing money on marketing that all the signals show them that they're making money on it simply because it's not being tracked well enough where it's yeah. like, oh, you know, we're getting, uh, you know, 35% of our leads are coming in from this one channel and the more money we spend on this channel, we, we think it correlates with higher revenue, but then they have like three months where it's like, oh, you know, something was broken in the ad account or it got like suspended and it shouldn't have been. So they had to fight with Google or whatever. And they're like, our account was suspended for like three months. There was no change in our revenue whatsoever. But despite it's it's showing that almost all of our leads were coming from this, it turns out that you actually had another uh, source that you had like a ridiculously high close rate on. And you were getting a ton of leads from this channel, but you had like an 8% close rate. And this other source that you got like 10% of your leads from had like a 70% close rate. Yeah. But because you were only looking at the lead data you know, that's what it is. So I think you're right. And uh, I I think that a lot of businesses would be very shocked if they tracked and attributed uh, leads to individual marketing channels and and actually sat down and went, oh, turns out uh, this is not actually profitable, even though all the typical signals uh,
0: are in the right place. Yeah. Because the other part of this, as you're talking, I'm thinking um, it's great to have a good source of marketing leads coming in, and, and we talk a lot about marketing qualified leads, but you need to also be able to turn those into sales qualified leads. So if you don't have a robust sales process and you don't have good people who can actually take a lead, uh, understand whether it's a legitimate lead and actually turn that into a buying customer and hopefully a returning customer, then it's all this all this money is going to be, for want of, for want of a better term, wasted up front.
1: Yeah, and what's also interesting about that is, and we just ran into this. I want to say last week or the week before, is we'll have we'll have um, we'll have clients come to us and be like, "Hey, we should spend more money on, uh, let's say, uh, service number one. You know, service number one has a has a close rate of like forty percent. You know, every time our sales team gets these leads, we love it. So let's spend more money here. And in the past, what we do is like, of course, like that that's where you're making the money. You have the data in your sales side." In the sales side to say that's where, uh, that you know, 40% close rate, that's great. Your average is 25%. Uh, but because you weren't tracking the other numbers, what you didn't realize is that while you did close at 40%, your actual CAC was more expensive for service one than it was for service three because the cost per lead or the cost per qualified lead was so much higher that mm. that 40% close rate didn't help you as much as you thought. And so you can also end up in a position where you're like, oh, I shifted my marketing spend to where we have the highest close rate, what we closed the best. And we're also not seeing an increase in revenue. How is that possible? Because right. the overall leads are now way down because the, the leads there were more expensive. And we you know, uh, we basically, uh, we love it when clients give us access to their CRMs. We just download all the raw data, match it up with the marketing data, and then we get those questions where we'll say like, hey, heres here's the data all blended together. We're happy to make this change, but we're expecting a like a 0.2% uh difference in your customer acquisition cost. And you sent us this email super excited, thinking that you just found like a gold mine, which like I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but like uh yes, you close 40% here. The leads are also about eight times more expensive. So, <laughs> you know, this is the
0: reality. And so with that, because you're talking about um return on investment there and if you've got an organization that doesn't really have granular metrics on how to measure this um that can give you a false sense of i guess um indication in terms of where the profit is so what are some of the what are some of the mistakes you're seeing out there in terms of organizations you probably you might have even alluded to this already but anything else specifically around the mistakes people make and companies make around the return on investment focus mm. uh- Not counting,
1: only looking at ROI, not looking at volume is a big mistake, is everyone loves talking about ROI, which is just a relative number. You know, you can spend a dollar, make $10, that's a 10x return, that sounds great, you have an extra $9 in your pocket. Yeah. Congrats. Uh, you can spend a hundred grand, make 200 grand. That's not a very attractive ROI percentage wise, but there's a lot more you can do with a hundred grand than you can with $9. Mm. So uh, a conversation that I have uh, often with clients, because every marketing case study, and we do this as well, focuses on the ROI number. You know, you want to see the, Oh, five, six, seven, eight, you know, 12,000% ROI. Uh, but less often looking at the actual raw uh, volume of that, uh, the actual raw cash. And so that's something that I like paying attention to besides just those relative uh, percentages is to say, hey, uh, one, you have more money, which means you can do more things with it. But two, you can also get your ROI to increase faster by also considering volume. Because if you're trying to uh, you know, run an ad campaign at a $10,000 a month spend, you're only collecting data based off of $10,000 a month in spend. And if you're trying to have a really high ROI, you're going to be... Iterating and growing that volume very, very slowly versus hmm. if you accept a lower ROI for at least a certain time, go, hey, you know, a two, three hundred percent ROI is acceptable. Yes, I'd love a six, seven, eight hundred percent, you know, though not realistic for a lot of businesses, especially at scale. And you grow the volume a bit faster, you're collecting five, six, seven times the amount of data. We might be able to make decisions in a week that used to be able to take a that used to take us like six to eight weeks. And so we're iterating so much faster that we can actually get through and say hey here're the 20 ideas that we have to increase your ROI to actually get that ROI number we can iterate through these and figure out which one is the actual winner within the next 2 months versus the next 2 years mm. and so that's a consideration that I don't see a lot of businesses make they want to keep things uh they want to keep the volume very low have a high ROI and then they very 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 slowly increase that volume while trying to maintain a high ROI but if you increase the volume first accept a still an ROI but a lower ROI the because of the extra volume you get later on it's so much easier and faster to iterate uh, that usually you'll be uh, you'll get more money and a higher ROI at the end because you just simply make more progress rather than slowly, slowly, slowly chugging along. So looking at yeah. volume and not just ROI.
0: And through that process, you like, actually get a better understanding of the customers that are attracted to you as well. And you get to verify whether, I guess the campaigns you're running and am I actually operating in the right niche? Do I have the right mm-hmm. um, solutions for the problem I'm trying to create? Um, because the market will tell you based on that. And so there has to be continual, I guess, adjustment along the way to make sure we're actually targeting the right, the right, the right audience.
1: Yeah. And I mean, depending on the situation, uh, depending on the marketing channel, it depends on how easy it is to target different audiences, depending on what you're talking about. So like, uh, some of our clients will come to us and be like, Hey, we want to have, we want to target these, uh, three different audiences. And we can try to come up with a, with a good example here. And I had one, I just lost it. So maybe this is a, <laughs> a, a useless train of thought that, that I shouldn't have dove into. Uh, uh, basically, TLDR is sometimes it is, sometimes it's easier to figure out the audience first and then start to advertise because unless you have a very large budget trying to figure out who your right target audience is through advertising, especially, you know, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, it's so expensive that unless you have just a, you know, sometimes just a disgusting amount of money to throw at it, I usually will tell people like, Hey, like there are, Other channels, other other ways to figure this out, and then come back to us once you have a better idea of who you're trying to target. Because otherwise, like, sure, I can give you tons of ideas of how to reach them. I don't Mm. know if they're going to work. You know, that's all marketing is—is taking a guess. You know, throwing money at it and seeing what it what works and iterating on that. Uh, And so, uh, once you figure out that audience, you can iterate on it easily through marketing. But I would caution uh, against trying to discover your right audience purely through at least advertising, unless you just have very deep pockets.
0: Yeah, because a lot of organizations out there, particularly now, given that, and it has been no different in the States that is in Australia, interest rates are continuing to go up, uh, lots of pressure, uh, lots of competitive pressures as well. So organizations are looking at trying to reduce their cost to serve. So it must be a very, very competitive industry that you're in. So you've got to be looking for those little nuances that can separate not just you from your competitors, but also the clients that you're working with that they can separate from their competitors and get that competitive advantage, which means you've got to be really specific on where you're targeting and what your purpose is and what you're trying to achieve. So it's um, it's a it's a dynamic. And, and as you said, marketing is a very um, unpredictable and yet depending on who you talk to, it's be very predictably unpredictable or unpredictably predictable um, industry. So, uh, but you've got to be in the game. You've got to be always uh, keeping your name in front of your customers or your ideal customers, because otherwise you're going to be very, very quickly becoming uh, irrelevant to the marketplace. So in the um in the work that you do, I noticed on on one of the things here, you talk about the launch, uh, the launch concept um and how it can help businesses scale really quickly. So can you take us through what that is and um and how you can help businesses scale rapidly?
1: Yeah. So Something that we, we sometimes spend way too much time trying to make the right decision that we just don't make a decision. And so what I did for a period of time is I just had a, a sticky note uh, on my monitor that just said launch on it. And it was just like, okay, the, I have the idea, the concept, like, do I have an SOP for this? No. Do I know exactly what this is supposed to look like? No could I put something out there that's effectively an MVP probably within like a day, under a day? Yes. So just like do it and then like refine it later. So if I have uh, like, uh, here's a good, here's a a good example. About this time last year is when we started asking our clients, like, you know, how much uh, the entire like uh, concept of focusing on tracking revenue, et cetera, started about this time last year. And with that, we're like, okay, let's also revisit like our our pricing structure and our pricing model. Well, what's the right pricing model? We were operating with the same model for a couple of years, and we just, you know, like most businesses, you just look at what your competitors are doing. And you're like that's what I'm going to do because that's what must work because that's what everyone else is doing, uh, which is horrible. And and I don't recommend it. That there's an interesting topic there. We want to dive into that. But basically, I was like, I don't know what the right pricing model is. I don't want to spend the next eight weeks doing research and like forecasts and like Excel sheets, etc. Granted, if you're a larger company, probably going to need to do that. Let me just write down all the ideas that I have. I can iterate. Uh, I could just, the pricing side of our proposal take me three seconds to like edit it just based off of what we're going to do. And I'll just put that in front of people and see what they say. So yes. there was a bit of chaos because we every single proposal had like different pricing models, different structures. We were taking on clients in which we had different pricing models and structures for them, which was kind of chaotic of the billing side. But in about two, three months, we went from eight different ideas to figuring out what we wanted to stick with. And that was a process that probably would have taken way, way longer if we just debated, oh, you know, what What about this? What about that? What, you know, what are these considerations? What, how does this affect our billing? If we use this process rather than that process? Uh, instead, I was just like, okay, great. Let's accept like two months of chaos just to figure this out and then move on. You know, if we want to, um, you know, if we want to try different offers, you know another thing we did what about different offers? you know, should we try we tried um what if we do an initial price and then we don't charge anything for three months uh, and then or what if we charge a lower rate for a certain period of time or what if we do fixed rate and then we move on to a variable rate or you know, what of all this other stuff? let's just put it all out there see what people, see what people say, Like, see what people react to. You have hmm. different positioning ideas. You have different target audience ideas. You have different ideas for directions you want to take with your website. Okay, great. Create different concepts, put them all up there, see what people like, see what they don't, iterate it through it quickly. Just It doesn't have to be perfect. There are plenty of uh, large businesses out there who have probably way worse looking websites than you do. They have way, way less refined sales processes than you do. They have way less intelligent people on your team, on their team than you do. Just try stuff put it out there and then look to actually refine it and make it pretty once you figure out what works rather than you yeah. know perfectly package it and then put it out there and then realize it doesn't work and then go okay great well that was 6 months for
0: nothing. <laughs> so that's um there's a really good lesson there for sales and that is just get on with it, right? And it's not it's not the ready fire aim. You do you do ever have, have to have an intention behind that, but what we're talking about there is taking some action because you get feedback from the marketplace as to what's resonating or what's not, and you can adjust and pivot accordingly.
1: Yeah. I mean, we had some pricing models in which I, I don't, I would tell you exactly what it was if I could remember one, but we had one that I thought could work, and I put it in front of one person, and they asked me like two questions about it, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, oh, turns out this is a stupid idea. Like, they were like, oh, what what happens in like this scenario? Or like, you know, what happens if we run into this? I can't remember what it was it was a while ago. Uh, but we never offered it to anybody ever again. That was the only sample size that I needed. Because once they asked those questions that I never thought to ask myself, I was like, oh, this just isn't viable. Because then yeah. once I actually thought about what the answers would be. So, you know. <laughs> I would much rather that than to spend four months putting together like the perfect proposal and like follow-up sequence and billing process for that just to get to that one prospect that then very quickly realizes that it's not viable.
0: (laughs) And then you've lost lost six months, although it depends on how you look at it. You might've just worked out what doesn't work for six months. And that can be the catalyst to take forward and improve the next go-to-market strategy. But um, I think the key message there is um, have an idea... Be wedded to that idea, but be open to flexible and flexible to change the idea as you move forward and test it in the marketplace. But take action. Do something. Don't just sit there and think about it because if you wait to everything be perfect, um, chances are not, it won't be.
1: Exactly. I mean, we'll have conversations with people about their own businesses where they're like, you know, which uh, you know, which of the eight different testimonials that we have for this service do we want to do we wanna focus on for this page that's like 75% dumb down the page and i'm like less than probably 20 percent of people are going to scroll down this page like who like just choose like who cares like let's go but we have to go back and forth and then like three months later we're having a conversation uh still about like what testimonial should be there and you're like oh like oh yes but what if we change the image that's near it or what you know what if we change this color what if you and it's like it, it's not going to matter like no. or if it does it's going to be so minor and we you know are you going to get sued for putting this out there? No. Okay, great. Let's put it out there. And then if you want to change it later, we can change it later.
0: <laughs> That's it. Don't focus on the, on the little things, focus on the things that are going to move you forward. So mate, as we, as we wrap up, you did touch on one important thing. I just want to maybe t- touch on before we, before we close out. And that is the the pricing strategy. So there'll be a lot of organizations and people within organizations listening to this and thinking, well, how do I price myself to the marketplace? And and I'm a big advocate of not being the cheapest in the marketplace. And, mm-hmm. In the areas that I tend to work in, a lot of businesses they're in very highly competitive environments, and often their competitors. The only way that they can get penetration into the market is to focus in on price, and we have to play a completely different game. I love your, I guess, take on pricing strategy in terms of whether it be for your business in terms of Comet Fuel and what you do, but also the organisations that you consult with in terms of lead generation and so forth. Is what's the concept or what's your approach? to pricing and where to, where to position.
1: Sure. So I'll, I'll say, I'll say a couple of things here. One on, on the point of being the least expensive, I have found that those businesses, especially if they're new and the least expensive always lose. And I'm saying this from working with tons of companies who come to us, who are like, Hey, we're, I, we're the new kid on the block. So we're going to, our value proposition is going to be that we're less expensive than everybody else, but here's what has to happen you're half the price, you have to have double the close rate, right? Yep. Your competitors that have been around for, forever and have a really refined sales process and close at 30% who are marketing on the same channels, who are paying the same cost per click that you are, who are closing at 30%, well, great. You better close at 60% or, you know, you better convert on your website. You know, they're converting at 10%, but great. You better convert at 20% just to have the same, just to be one-to-one for them yeah. Uh, in comparison to make the same amount of money. And oftentimes it's no, you still... Close less often. You still convert less frequently because you, know, you don't, you're not as refined. You don't have the experience. You don't have the, the data to to refine. So I typically find that the uh, going into a new market and being oh you know I'm the less expensive one is just kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're you're converting less people anyways. You're closing less people anyways, and the ones that you do convert and close, you're making less money from them. So you can't uh, grow the business faster. Uh, so uh, aside from that, I. I think that you have a lot more flexibility once you have consistent uh, lead gen, you have a ton of freedom. I think before then, I'm in the favor of doing whatever you need to, to get to that point. Uh, if you're in basically uh, fighting for survival, you're going to, you need to pay the bills, do whatever it takes to be able to you know survive to the next day. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, is that necessarily the best advice? I don't know, but that's what I did. You know, survivorship bias, maybe, but that's how I got here. Once you have that and you're like, hey, I know that I can get more people to sit down and have a sales conversation with me, uh, create some sort of formula if you can, depending on the business is going to uh, differ. But what I did is I went, okay, roughly, I think we can handle, let's say, uh, 50 clients based off of you know the team size. we are. I think that we can uh, reasonably handle 50. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say our base price is X. If we have under 80% capacity, our minimum is X. If we're mm-hmm. at 80 to 90 percent, our minimum is X plus 10%. If we're at 90% plus, it's our average plus like uh 20% or something like that. And because the law averages, every time we take on a new client, because it's above the average, it's gonna push the average up, which means that we're exponentially growing the uh the minimum. Mm-hmm. And then as people drop off, our price is just simply increasing, increasing, increasing. Uh, because we have uh because we have that. That kind of lead flow uh, that we need. So that's what we did to kind of increase our pricing. Uh, and it doesn't matter if people are saying no if you're busy because yeah. you know you could have a one percent close rate if you have an infinite number of leads. You, you know you obviously you won't have infinite, but uh, if you have a lot of lead flow, just increase the pricing. You measure okay, this is our average. What if we just increase it by five percent? If you're scared of increasing pricing, if you're not scared of increasing pricing, maybe a hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, you know just see, not necessarily caring about if people say no or if your close rate necessarily drops off a cliff again if you have the lead gen you don't have to be as worried because you know you can always go back or you can always mm. you know you have more opportunities but then just figure out what those new objectives uh, objections are you can sell probably whatever it is that you're selling at four times the price it's just that the objections are going to be different the way that you position it might have to be different the way that your deliverables look or feel might have to be different yeah. and you can iterate upon that process a little bit over time and go yes when we were selling at a 1000 our close rate was you know, 50%, we were selling at 2000. Our close rate was 10%. That seems abysmal and it's, you know, a step backwards seemingly. But because we had the security in our lead gen, we were able to continue uh, to try and sell at 2000. We got some yeses, which makes it, you know, easier for us over time. But we're able to iterate and go, okay, why did you say no? Let's iterate upon that. Let's just try it out. Let's just, you know, hey, why did you say no? Uh, or what's that objection? Oh, like, I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if you can get me an ROI at 2000. Okay. Let's, let's dive into that. Let's just figure it out. Let's just iterate yeah. upon it. That's, you know, that's just it. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not particularly, uh, I don't say I'm particularly smart at what I do. I'm just, uh, stupidly ambitious and just like, okay, that didn't work. Let's just try something else that didn't work. Let's just try something else until we get it.
0: Well, oh, and that's, that, that, I reckon that's the key lesson because a lot of people overthink it. Um, a lot of sales letters overthink it. A lot of companies overthink it. Um, you just put it out in the marketplace and the market will tell you what is what is appropriate um, because if there's value and you're delivering more, more output to what the customer believes believes um, more than what they are paying for, then that's going to be a valuable proposition for them and they're likely to want to keep doing business. Um, but also be really clear on what you believe you're worth as well, what your service is worth and what you believe you're worth as an individual and, and stick to that because you're going to resonate with some and you're not going to resonate with others, but you've got to put something out there to know where your posi- position in the marketplace to begin with, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll literally sit down with one person in one industry and they'll they'll see our price and they'll go, that is way too expensive, way more than anybody else is is quoting me. And then we'll sit down like the same day, somebody else, you know, basically the same industry, give them the same price. And they're like, wow, that's way lower than I expected it to be. And, and it's not nothing. It's not necessarily anything wrong with like your sales process, your prospecting. It can just simply be, it can literally be as simple as this person doesn't know what to expect for a price you know these two people they both got quotes from three separate different companies this person just seemingly was attracted to you plus three Mm -hmm. lower cost companies this other person was attracted to you and three really expensive companies and so the dice just fell in a way that when you presented your price it was five times higher to this person and half the price to this person
0: that's it that's it so i think the um the key message there is uh to use your term launch just launch get into it get into it yeah and um because the market's going to give you feedback and you can adjust as you go
1: yeah just try it people say no oh well you know you know reach out to them in six months of a year like just don't be rude and people are usually happy to talk to you later on too like you know I've had conversations with people they said oh the price is too expensive way too expensive you know we're gonna work with somebody else two years later we're having a conversation they're like you know what yeah send us another proposal and they're like yeah, even though it's even more expensive than the original one now they're ready now they're in a better place now they have higher education now your delivery on what you're proposing to them is better or maybe you never hear from them again but you have more experience under your belt in in terms of how to pitch you know that didn't go well yeah. i really felt as though that when i explained this concept they really didn't understand it i'm going to uh, i'm going to keep everything else the same but i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on how i deliver this particular concept when i'm when i'm talking about you know the fourth step of what we're doing or whatever yeah.
0: And that's the key thing. It's, it's constant and never-ending improvement, just staying in the game and being prepared to change and be flexible in terms of how you go to market and get the feedback and adjust. And you know what? you're And if you look at your business today compared to even 12 months ago, because you alluded to that, it's, it's probably in a completely different space. And in 12 months' time, it's probably going to be in a completely different space again.
1: Yeah, hopefully.
0: <laughs> <laughs> On a massive upward trajectory, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So Jared, as we finish up, mate, any any final words of wisdom to uh, to anybody listening to this that is grappling with either um, marketing budgets, how to improve their go to market strategy, um, conversion rates, and stuff like that, based on your experience, any key last words of wisdom to leave them with?
1: Yeah, so I'll say two things. Is one uh, track everything, uh, as silly as that sounds, uh, even uh, you know how many how many people contacted you, how many turned into uh, a demo, how many people showed up, how many people showed up or qualified, how many of those qualified, like everything that you can think of, find a way to track it. it. It sounds very overwhelming. You don't have to sit down and do it all at once. You can just do the most important things and then slowly you know, expand that over time. But as you get more and more granular with that data, you get to answer better decisions. And uh, I believe that most businesses or most uh, departments could improve at you know, two to three times the speed that they currently are if they got a lot more granular at their tracking and simply went not just how many people showed up for our demos, but what if we create a, a checklist of all the different qualification points, assign different point values to them, and then go, what was our point score you know, this week, this month? And then go, oh, we're not just trying to get more people to show up. We're trying to get more people to show up who have you know, this particular pain point. Because when we asked about, oh, what are the 20 most common pain points that we hear, what are our our close rates against those 20 pain points? might take some time putting the data together and go, oh, we close really well uh, when people have these two pain points. Mm. Okay, do we need to focus more of our marketing on people who have those two pain points or do we need to change our sales process to give a different delivery to people who have one of the other 18 different pain points? Uh, And you might realize that that was actually the bottleneck uh, that is a week of work that'll, you know, hit your next quarterly objective in the next month rather than you know the next 6 months.
0: Yeah. Love it. Love it. And for people wanting to know a little bit more about Comet Fuel but also the world famous Jared Spiek, where do they uh where do they go to find more about you mate and to connect?
1: Yeah, you can go to cometfuel.com to learn about Comet Fuel or you can search for Jared Spiek on YouTube for the uh for the very neglected YouTube channel that I have.
0: The <laughs> <laughs> very neglected YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. That means it's neglected by, the, by your followers or neglected by you?
1: Neglected by me. It, I enjoy <laughs> putting content out, but I massively overthink it. And so I constantly write scripts, delete them, film stuff, delete it, film stuff, refilm it. Uh, so it, it takes a while. I need to just sit down and be like, hey, like, I'm not happy with it. And that's fine. I'll put it out there. Like that. that's an area that I really do struggle on. Just like launch, launch, launch is when I'm actually sitting down and like pretty content i massively overthink that constantly
0: well actually as you've just reminded me i need to put a lot of um these podcast episodes up onto youtube as well so um i must do exactly the same thing and not overthink it just put them up there (laughs) (laughs) mate it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for um thank you for jumping on i know it's um late monday night over in new hampshire and uh you're still recovering from that dreaded covid but Greatly appreciate you jumping on and spending some time with us on the exceptional sales leader podcast, mate.
1: Absolutely, I really appreciate you having me, and hopefully the COVID brain wasn't uh, wasn't too confusing at some parts.
0: That no, was really good, mate. Thanks very much. Good on you. Thank you.